0: Don't turn a blind eye You can hear the people cry Wake up and be strong And fight for what is wrong
1: Hi there and welcome to another episode of Bold, Conversations About Race. In this episode, Dalia Ferlito and I speak with professor and writer Paul Kivel about the basics of, and his own personal journey to, white allyship on issues of race. After that, we have recordings and interviews from a recent action encouraging a boycott against gym chain 24-hour fitness. But first, our cultural piece. A spoken word poem entitled "ID Check" by Ariel Lucky. You can find links to more of Ariel's work, as well as to most of the resources mentioned in this episode, by viewing the show notes at patreon.com/smallbeans.
2: I am a
3: blue-eyed devil, peck a wood and country cracker. Redneck, white trash, and urban wannabe rapper. I am the man who's got the God complex. Pimping privilege from class, skin color, and sex. I am the president, the pope, and the cop on your block. I'm the banker buying stock and selling bullets and Glocks. This is an ID check like a rope around your neck. Better know who you are when death calls collect. This is an ID check like the border patrol, but this is not for your country. This is for your soul. I'm the great-great-great-grandchild of the Mayflower, gave thanks to God for smallpox so I could take power. I'm the great-great-grandchild of broken treaties, inheritor of racial slurs spoken freely. I'm the great-grandchild of BIA and Homestead Act. I shot wounded knee, stabbed crazy horse in the back. I'm the grandchild of Jim Crow and burning crosses. I yelled for a lynching. Then brought my children to watch it. I'm the child of GI Bill, white affirmative action. Got promotions and jobs reserved for Anglo Saxons. I'm the father of Katrina and government neglect. This is a race roll call. This is an ID check. I am President Andrew Johnson. I took your 40 acres away. I am William Simmons. I led the KKK. I am Senator Joe McCarthy, I blacklisted the nation. I am Governor Orbel Favis, I blocked integration. I am Roy Bryant and J.W. Milam. I murdered Emmett Till and then denied that I killed him. I am Lawrence Brewer, John King, and Sean Allen Berry. I dragged James Byrd to his death in a black cemetery. I am Arizona Senator John Huppenthal. I shut Mexican-American studies down. I am police officer Darren Wilson. I murdered Michael Brown. I am Bill O'Reilly. I spew hate every day. I am Donald J. Trump. What else do I need to say? This is an ID check like airport security, the real terrorism state of emergency. This is an ID check like the border patrol, but this is not for your country. This is for your soul. I'm a 12th generation illegal immigrant. My family sold our culture as an economic stimulant. I have stolen the language of West African griots, sampled the stand up bass of standard jazz trios. I have eaten the heart of the boogie down Bronx, carved a new ivory tower out of elephant tusk onks. I appropriate your culture because I sold my roots. Got my hair did in cornrows, sport Timbaland boots. I wear a bendy on my forehead, Che's face on my chest. I wave sage and an eagle feather and call this space blessed. I got a Chinese character tattooed on my arm, rockin' Ohm necklace as a good luck charm. I am Wonder Bread. I am the melting pot. I buy my coolness at the mall, cause that's what I've been taught I'm a pilgrim, a cowboy, all-American athlete. I am Elvis, Kenny G, Vanilla Ice, the boys from Backstreet. This is an ID check. This is a shattered mirror. This is the voice of Whitey. This is the psyche of fear. This is an ID check, like the border patrol, but this is not for your country. This is for your soul. I walk on red carpet, sewn in maquiladoras. I pimp the stock market with the ruling class employers. I make a living from your dying. I am free trade. I'm the law that says IMF loan interest gets paid. I am middle class white flight and suburbanization. I'm a yuppie drinking Starbucks latte gentrification. I live in sundown towns and feast on strange fruit i get paid for every ghetto youth the army recruits i am the air you breathe the water you drink i'm the hegemony underneath the way you think i am white supremacy and patriotism i'm the private profits made from public prisons i'm the cop in your head i am cointelpro i'm the non-profit industrial complex's cash flow i am white collar crime and corporate subsidies i spit dirty white lies i'm fox news publishing I'm a Blackwater mercenary paid by your taxes. I'm a federal bailout to Wall Street while the economy collapses. I'm the stars and stripes. (laughs) United we stand. I am the great white hope. I am Superman. This is an ID check like three o'clock roadblock. This is psychotherapy by electric shock. This is an ID check like the Border Patrol. But this is not for my country. This is for my soul, because I am also Robert Carter. I freed 500 of my slaves. I'm Supreme Court Justice John Jay. I ruled against racist ways. I am preacher John Woolman. I'm a Quaker abolitionist. I'm Henry David Thoreau. I wrote Civil Disobedience. I am John Brown. I raided Harper's Ferry. I'm Ralph Waldo Emerson, a poet revolutionary. I am Mark Twain. I protested imperialism in the Philippines. I am Albert Einstein. I spoke out against lynching. I am Miles Horton. I founded Highlander Center's popular education. I am Abraham Joshua Heschel. When I marched with Dr. King, my feet were praying. I am Andrew Goodman and Michael Schwerner. I campaigned for justice in the freedom summer. I am Bill Ayers. I forecast the weather underground. I'm Jack Junebug Boinken. I led the young patriots in Chicago's uptown. I am Howard Zinn. I wrote The People's History. I am Noam Chomsky. I dropped knowledge on society. I am Paul Kivel. I wrote Uprooting Racism. I am Tim Wise, I speak truth across the nation. I'm the push for racial justice. I am freedom on a rise. I am the possibility in my son's blue eyes. This is an ID check like the border patrol, but this is not for our country. This is for our soul.
0: Has shown me you get hurt and lonely
1: and now we hope you enjoy our conversation with Paul Kivell
4: All right, what's up, everybody? My name is Dahlia, and I'm from White People for Black Lives. You heard me on the last podcast episode, and I have taken uh, some of the reins away from Mike, and we'll (laughs) we'll be joining the team as a co host along with Mike for today's episode. Um, So I'm thrilled to announce that we have a very special guest with us, and today we're going to be talking. a little bit more about the history of the construction of whiteness. So we know that in our last episode we were talking about some pretty heavy topics around police brutality and Black Lives Matter and capitalism, and we thought that maybe for this episode we can take it back a notch and talk a little bit more about the basics of whiteness and the history of whiteness, how whiteness came to be, and what are these words that people might be throwing around like white supremacy or anti-racism, and all those big words that sometimes can get us a little bit lost when we're really trying to do the right thing and take action for racial justice. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce our very special guest, Paul Kivel. Paul Kivel is a social justice educator and activist a writer, and he's been an innovative leader in violence prevention for more than 45 years. He's an accomplished trainer and a speaker on men's issues, racism and diversity, challenges of youth, teen dating violence and family violence, and raising boys to manhood, and the impact of class and power on daily life. His work gives people the understanding to become involved in social justice work and the tools to become more effective allies in community struggles to end oppression and injustice and to transform organizations and institutions. He's also the author of this amazing book, which is gonna be in the show notes, called Uprooting Racism. And I'll say it was one of the first books that I read 10 years ago on my initial anti-racist journey when I was being called in when I was first introduced to the fact that I had white privilege and I was in a little bit of a place of a struggle and somebody introduced me to his book and it was completely phenomenal and it really changed my world and shift my consciousness around what I should be doing and could be doing to better the world around me as a white person and so I am completely excited to be able to have a conversation with Paul today and to be able to introduce Paul to you all who uh, may not know who he is.
1: Yeah, and I'm also here, too.
4: (laughs) I gotta say... (laughs) Let's not forget about you, Mike. Oh, it's amazing. (laughs) I'm
1: just sitting here sipping on coffee, completely relaxed and relieved, all pressure on Dahlia. This is amazing. (laughs) So who knows? I might not talk for the whole rest of the thing, and that's fine. But just so you know what my voice sounds like, this is Michael Slame, and I'll add that if you want um, sort of a condensed gist of what Dahlia, the book Dahlia just was discussing, Uh, I also came across Paul's article called I'm not white I'm a Jew and that is also a very powerful short read to introduce you to topics like this I think too yes so yeah an honor to have Paul with us hello Paul
4: hey Paul hey, how hello. you doing? <laughs>
1: it began raining just as you said hello, so I think that portends a very momentous interview.
4: That's right, that's right. <laughs> so, Paul, we just uh, wanted to kind of have, have our listeners get a better understanding of, of who you are and, like, what was your journey um, into anti-racism and anti-patriarchy work? Okay,
5: let me give a brief summary of kind of how I, what my path has been. In the late 1960s I was in college and the war against Vietnam was going on and I got involved with uh, anti-war work at that point and also the black students at our college were organizing for a black studies program. They were a very small minority in a predominantly white institution and I got involved with trying to support them in being heard and recognized and responded to by the students and faculty and administration. So really, that was the time that I first um, got involved with some of these issues. Um, and you know, a group of us who were white students went to uh, the black students who were putting forth their their agenda and uh, asked what we could do to support them. And they said, well, we have some practical needs. You know, we need to get food into where we're um, staying and messages out, uh, you know, public relations. And we need you to talk to the white people on this campus. The first part of that was really pretty straightforward. We could organize, you know, direct solidarity and support and communications and food. But I realized at that point, I had no idea how to talk to white people. I hadn't even really thought about being white myself. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it was one of my first lessons. And, um, you know, what does it mean to be be an ally, to show up and support? About 10 years later, being somewhat of a a slow learner, the women's movement was going strong, particularly aspects of the women's movement dealing with male violence, uh, sexual assault, domestic violence, child sexual assault, things like that and a group of us who were men in the San Francisco Bay Area in the late 70s wanted to respond and do what we could to support them and we went to them and said what you know what can we do and they said well we're dealing with women the survivors of male violence but it's men who are doing the violence Uh, talk with the men and we said well is there anything else we could do Um, you know filing or sweeping or, or Child care.
1: Uh, anything we, but talk. Don't make us talk to the men, please.
5: <laughs> anything but that, you know. We, we were the good guys and we didn't want to be associated with the yeah. bad guys. That's right. Yeah, that's true. Um, but they were very strong and clear and we respected what they were saying. And so. Um, we set up a program called the Oakland Men's Project particularly to work on issues of male violence, educating and mobilizing men. And you know, I, I, so my, my path was one of being concerned and wanting to be involved and then listening to the folks on the front lines, people of color, women, etc., and trying to figure out a way to respond to them that that supported the work that they were doing, taking leadership from them. And so pretty much my trajectory has been doing that ever since um, in various kinds of organizations um, as a writer, as a activist. About 10 years ago, a group of us were responding to calls from African Americans after Obama was elected to respond to the rising levels of racism that were occurring in our country at that time. Um, this was right after his election, there was a rise in militias, there was uh, mm-hmm. the Tea Party, there was a lot of attacks on Obama and his, his wife. And so we put together an organization called Surge, showing up for racial justice to set up chapters around the country so that white people could step forward and really get involved and work for racial justice um, with direct accountability to people of color on the front lines of those issues. So. It's always been about bringing my full self and then listening and being accountable to the work that we do.
4: Yeah, that's, that's amazing. And for folks who might have questions about showing up for racial justice, we'll have links in the show notes for you to be able to learn more about uh, showing up for racial justice, which is what we referenced in our first podcast episode. Um, but there are chapters all across the country, and you can certainly get involved. And, you know, Paul, I, I had another question for you, because you write in, in your book, um, Uprooting Racism, about your own identities as being white, male, cisgender, being heterosexual, having class privilege. And so can you talk a little bit... um, And being Jewish. Oh, oh, and being Jewish. Okay, (laughs) yep. (laughs) I forgot about that one. Thank you. (laughs) And uh, can you talk a little bit uh, about... You know, something that that we've been working on here in white people for black lives is getting white folks to understand their personal stake in ending um, the oppressive systems that we're confronting. Can you talk a little bit about what your personal stake is um, being a person, you know, who essentially embodies all of the characteristics and identities of a privileged class in this country? And in fact, in, you know, in the world. Um, And so what's at stake for you in ending these oppressive systems?
5: Well, I think there's multiple things at stake um, and I'll just kind of briefly outline some of them. Um, None of us are born white, white's a political category. Um, We all come from particular cultures. My uh, four parents were from Eastern Europe, um, came to this country with uh, unique cultures and languages and and beliefs and and practices. Um, And part of the bargain that we were faced with when we got here was, well, you can assimilate, uh, you can become accepted as white and and get access to education and jobs if you give up a lot of those heritages, if you learn to speak like white people, if you give up your uh, original languages, if you, you know, take on the foods and customs and rituals and holidays of, quote, white people, unquote, then we'll accept you. And that gives you the privileges that we keep away from people of color in this country. And so if you buy into that package, you have to take on the attitudes that the the collusion into this system of white supremacy or racism where white people have more and people of color are uh, vulnerable to violence and exploitation and, and marginalization. So one of the costs I think is that we've lost so much of our cultures and histories in the process of assimilation.
1: But we have your basic white people culture now of mayonnaise and ham. What's not to like? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I think this first hit me in the face because I'm a huge Kurt Vonnegut fan. And uh, he was the first author I ever encountered who wrote repeatedly about he used to be German and now he's just a white guy. And that had a lot to do with German shame after World War I, but his parents very actively assimilated the family and he really felt that loss. So I think... I think you bring up a really important aspect of this work.
5: Right. Um, So let me um, name three other um, major stakes that I think, um, Mm -hmm. or at least three. Um, One is that uh, as white people, we live highly segregated lives. Um, Our housing is segregated, our workplaces, our schools, our religious uh, organizations. And that means that we're really cut off from people of color and from the contributions that people of color um, make to our society to and to the tremendous brilliance and creativity in communities of color and often we're very isolated um, in our white protected secure neighborhoods and, and lives. Um, another major stake is that you know we're being uh, incredibly exploited by by the ruling class in this country the one percent uh, Billionaires and and multi millionaires who control the corporations and the government and many facets of our lives, and yet we are, our attention is diverted by uh, racism towards people uh, lower income people of color um, recent immigrants Muslims uh, Native Americans. Um, we're we're told that they are our enemy and our problem, and they're taking away things from us and it means that we can't unite with our national allies and address the incredible inequalities in our country and work for the redistribution of wealth and so we have a tremendous stake in overcoming the racism so that we can actually work together to build the society that we want to live in
1: right the caravan is coming so you can't unionize you gotta worry about the caravan right Yeah.
4: yeah the diversion Yeah. another
5: uh, important stake is you know if i think about who makes my clothes um, who makes my, who, my cell phone, my computer, who grew the food that I had this morning? Um, I, I'm dependent on a, a web of people of color around the world who are being exploited and abused in, so that I can have good things, that I can have clothes and computers and cell phones. Um, and that, that fundamentally damages my moral integrity to be living in a society in which my well-being is based on the exploitation and violence directed at people of color. Um, and so I have a tremendous um, um, psychological moral stake in having a society in which everybody is respected and, and has living wages and healthy working conditions and homes etc.
1: And of course, any tools of oppression that you allow yourself to benefit from, it's just happenstance that you aren't on the receiving end of that. And
5: it's not only a kind of a moral cost, but it, it's really a spiritual cost. What does it say to us as people that we live in a society and don't work for justice, that we yes. uh, tolerate and collude with the systematic exploitation of people all around us? Um, So those are really deep costs. The last thing I think that is worth talking about is that, you know, when toxic waste is dumped into communities of color, when the water is polluted, the air is polluted, it doesn't just stay in communities of color. Um, All of our water is contaminated and all of our air is polluted. And as long as we don't speak up and challenge the Um, exploitation of communities of color, then we we live the impact of that. We're not immune. No matter how segregated, how isolated we are, how protected we feel in our communities, we still breathe the air, drink the water, eat the food. And so we have a common interest in changing tremendously, dramatically, this system that we're living in.
1: We're all in the same polar vortex, as it were.
5: Uh, Yeah, for sure. And wildfires and hurricanes and everything else.
4: Right. I mean, I'm even thinking about, you know, uh, what just happened recently in Malibu. Right. Um, and, And it's, you know, rich, wealthy, white communities who are now feeling the impact of climate change, whereas other communities, poor communities, communities of color have been feeling its impacts for decades upon decades. And it's, it's now starting to it's
1: like oh, I'm not immune. There right. is a point where money does not make me immune exactly, to this. Yeah. Exactly.
4: So Paul, um, I was wondering if you could if we could just circle back real quick, because you talked about how like white working class folks are being exploited as well by the 1%. Can you talk maybe a little bit more about what that looks like or how that happens? Let's get into self-interest. Because, you know, oftentimes we think of it being a dichotomy, you know, if you're you're either the oppressor or you're the oppressed, and there is a nuance there where white folks are being used as tools by the 1% to be able to continue the system as is. And can you elaborate on any of that? Sure.
5: Um, You know, I mean, I think that, there are some benefits we get as white people under the system of racism that everybody who is white has, um, um, but at the same time, with the tremendous concentration of wealth that we have in this country, we have tens of millions of people who don't have enough food, and many of those are white as well as people of color. We have uh, uh, tremendous uh, millions of people who are homeless. We have millions of, tens of millions of people without adequate medical care. Um, The concentration of wealth in our society means that most of us maybe get a few benefits from being white, um, but we are being exploited in in all kinds of areas in our society. Poor and working class and even middle class white people are not healthy. Uh, We don't have the kinds of lifespans that people in European countries do, for instance. We don't have the quality of life and for many people, even just uh, surviving Mm -hmm. um, is a real struggle Um, and we see this in high rates of suicide, drug addiction, family violence. There's just all kinds of areas in our communities where um, our white communities are suffering uh, just alongside of. Uh, communities of color.
4: Right. I was reading an article that was highlighting what's called deaths of despair and that there's been an increase in suicides and overdoses among middle-aged white men and particularly over the last 20 or so years, um, which has been of you know, epidemic proportions as it related to the economic downturn and lack of prosperity and sense of hopelessness um, within that community that has obviously been felt for many communities for a very long time, but is um, especially of an epidemic proportion among mm-hmm. white middle-aged men now.
1: And so important to point out because I think again, uh, shout out to our very like basic beginners here. Uh, a common refrain is so often when you're grappling, when you're a white person grappling with these concepts for the very first time, and your defensiveness kicks in. How can there be white privilege when I'm struggling? Right.
5: Right. In general, I don't actually use the word privilege so much because I think mm-hmm. most of the privileges have accrued in the one percent in the ruling class. Um, there are benefits we get, but uh most of us don't feel like we have any extra or any real privileges. Um, we're just trying to get by.
4: Yeah. Right, right. So we've talked a little bit about, uh what's at stake for white folks you know which is living with integrity Um, be able to challenge the system so that we work collectively with other people to be able to make a better world for all of us and you also talked about following the leadership of people of color getting out of your comfort zone and we're gonna switch gears a little bit because when we start talking about these words like whiteness as as really anything at all um or white privilege, which is a little bit of a buzzword that oftentimes gets rejected by white folks. Um, And I know that and I appreciate that you brought in the term benefits because it helps to understand that there's a difference between privilege, which for white people especially, I know for myself I'll speak to, is often synonymous with class privilege and it can feel like a distancing term if you're from a poor and working class background. Um, so in, in, in thinking a little bit further, uh, as soon as we begin talking about whiteness, people, uh, white folks will say, well, am I supposed to feel guilty that I'm white?
5: that's it's a common response Um, you know um, often people think that this is about who you are or who I am as a person am I a good person or not you know do I um, try to treat people well Um, am I a person of integrity and honesty and you know um, and, and really racism we really have to sit back and say well what is racism racism is a system um, it's a set of institutions, is a set of a concentration of wealth and power um, among the ruling class in particular, who, who are primarily white, um, and it, it operates on in different institutional levels. It operates at the institution at the institutional level in our healthcare system, our educational system, um, uh, the job market, things like that. It operates at the structural level, the interplay of these different institutions together so that we can talk about a school-to-prison pipeline where schools push out students of color out of our educational system and the criminal legal system sweeps them up through racial profiling and other means. Um, And we can talk about the cultural level, the way it's reproduced in our uh, media, in our schools, in our religious stories, things like that. So we need to shift the attention from this personal question of am I guilty, am I wrong, am I a bad person, am I racist, to we have a problem in our society. It's tearing our society apart, and it oper- and it's in, in a system of oppression that it, it, it involves institutions. And um, we need to think, be talking about, well, what do we do, how do we work together to address the institutionalized racism and not worry about whether I'm a good person or not? Um, we do have to do personal work. We have to look at our prejudices and stereotypes and misinformation. But the real challenge is to move away from that uh, personal inventory and move towards working together with others to actually move our society forward. Uh, so I think that um, people have a lot, white people in particular, have lots of feelings. You know, when we start talking about racism, Mm -hmm. we may feel defensive, we may feel guilty, we may feel ashamed, we may feel angry. And, you know, our feelings are just our feelings. Those are fine. We we can find other white people to share those feelings Mm -hmm. with. But Mm -hmm. we need to move beyond that personal level and move to the institutional systemic level.
1: One of the main roadblocks, I think, to this work is... People trying to score points and figure mm-hmm, out, mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I like Paul said, it's not. I'm not trying to shame anyone. It is understandable. And when you first come to that realization that even though I think I'm a quote unquote good person, I have unrecognized biases and prejudice, and this work I need to do, there's this strong compulsion. I think to just prove you're not racist as hard as you can.
5: Yeah, and I think that one of the things we have to get comfortable with is the fact that we know there's a racism in all aspects of our society so when a person of color um, points it out or names it um, if we go into well I'm feeling guilty or embarrassed or ashamed you know this is what Robin DiAngelo calls in her book white mm-hmm. fragility um, we 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 take the conversation back to white people how are we feeling and how do we take care of each other in there and we take it away from looking at the racism that's been named and is sitting in front of us and so really um, that those personal responses are kind of a a, a counter move mm-hmm. to take racism back off the table and fo- refocus the attention on those of us who are white in, in, in that conversation
4: Right. The psychological defense moves to not have to deal yeah. with our own self.
1: Let's put it this way. If you've ever seriously said being called racist is the new racism. Uh, this shows for you. You got to learn more. We're going to we're going <laughs> to educate you. Yeah.
5: I, I would just add that, you know, racism is a problem we have. And if we can't talk about it, we can't solve it. Yep. Yep. And so the more we talk about it, the better. And, in fact, Black Lives Matter folks have said for a long time that silence is conspiracy, is complicity. It it is a way to maintain the status quo um, and not address the real issues that we face. One of the things, too, that we do as white people is um, we tend to call other white people out. And if if somebody Mm -hmm. says something that we don't think is correct or um, right or is ignorant, then we come down really heavily on them and of course nobody likes to experience that. So We need to, you know, at Surge, showing up for racial justice, we have one of our core values is calling people in. Yes. yes. We want to welcome people where they are and, and we want people to ask questions. We want them to be curious. We want them to be open to new ideas. and. That means supporting them and not criticizing them for not knowing things already. You no, know, we, were your, all, yeah. we yeah. all started on this path at some point and started learning and making mistakes and coming back and keeping going. Um, so we really need to... to think about how, as white people, we call other white people in rather than pushing them away mm-hmm. and making them feel sh- guilty or ashamed or embarrassed or whatever.
1: Right. Intimidating them back into inaction.
4: So something that I was thinking about, too, when, as you're speaking is like, you know, we, we're trying to provide, at least in our white affinity group work, we're trying to provide an alternative for white people to get into um, so that we don't continue to promote racism. And I was watching, I think, a TED Talks by Uh, Chris uh, Piccolini I believe his last name is he's a former white supremacist and he was talking about the recruitment of white supremacists and how effective they are at empathy and listening and talking and hearing (laughs) and when you think about those qualities that are so great so great at at recruitment because they're willing to listen and they're mm-hmm. willing to have empathy for other for the folks that they're talking to and it keeps people in and so that's what we're up against right and so if we're embodying these uh, kind of the opposite of that where we're shaming other white people we're calling out other white people we're telling you you're not good enough to be in these spaces white people then that's leaving those white people vulnerable for recru- recruitment by the other side and that's not what we want right if we're trying to organize millions millions of white people into racial justice. Into allyship, absolutely.
5: Right. That's an important point. Um, you know, people get involved with the racial justice work because they not only care about the issues, but they make connections with other people and feel like there's a community of folks that they can become involved with that will support them and that they can work with. And so... We, we really, you know, one of the tools, for, <laughs> one of the important requirements for being a good white ally is, is humility, um, being humble in what we know and also um, not feeling superior to other white people because uh, of what we've said or done or think or whatever.
4: So, on the note of white supremacists and white supremacy, uh, can you kind of explain the difference for people who may not know um, the difference between a white supremacist and a white supremacist system and how white people can relate to white supremacy on you know different types of levels?
1: And if you could, please say white supremacist system ten times fast before <laughs> you begin your answer?
5: I, I think that that's an important um, distinction um, that often people don't make. and, Um, white supremacists are people who believe that this should be a white republic or a white society with white people in charge of everything and and that people of color should be either exploited or excluded or or expelled. (laughs) Um, And there's there's a lot of different kinds of groups in that category. Um, And one of the things we do as more mainstream white people often say, well, racism is a problem of white supremacists, mm-hmm. of hate groups, of the Klan and the mm-hmm. neo-Nazis, and therefore it's not for it's not a, my problem. It's not in my community. It's over there someplace, um, and but white supremacy is. The system that we all live inside of—the system of exploitation and violence, concentration of wealth, poverty, and inequality—and that is in all of our communities. That affects yeah. all of us, as we've been talking about. Like you're
1: discussing purchasing your purchasing your phone, you're already a part of that broader system. If you're listening right. if to this on we're a phone. inside
5: all of these institutions in our in our communities, and we live in segregated systems and and, et cetera, so um, we need to be talking about white supremacy clearly as the, the system that we're all inside of and not use the excuse that there are these extreme folks who are marching in the streets as neo-Nazis or mm-hmm. committing hate crimes. That the, it, It's not just that they're the problem, they're the manifestation or symptom of the problem, but the real problem is the structural ways, the pervasive and systematic and everyday ways that racism plays out in our lives. So that's a a really important um, distinction Mm -hmm. for us to understand.
4: Right, right. Can we talk just just briefly, because we know it's a very long history, um, but can can you talk a little bit about kind of how whiteness even came to be and how it may have shifted at different points in time? Like who is considered white? What is white? How that happened?
5: Okay, Um, it's important that, as white people, we understand the history of racism. It it was created in this country uh, in the colonial period in the late 17th century, Um, and at that time, um, African-Americans and white immigrants from Europe were working together um, in very similar conditions in the plantations of the South and uh people not only just worked together they lived together they had families together um and there was they clearly understood they were being exploited by uh the colonial plant plantation owners um and they had a lot of common interest and and out of that uh, came some rebellions they rose up and and tried to win their liberation and and change the systems um, Bacon's Rebellion was one example of that, but there were lots of examples in that period. And so the colonial elite realized that they needed to separate um, b- black folks from white folks because t- together they were really powerful and they were dangerous to the concentration of wealth on the plantations. And so they started par- passing a series of laws that made um, Africa in- imported Africans uh, slave slaves, for lifetimes and um, they started passing laws that gave privileges or benefits to indentured white people so that after they did their five years of indentureship that they would get tools and money and land and uh, support for becoming independent farmers and you know citizens and so they systematically created a um, a a set of laws and social institutions to enforce a racial hierarchy in which the benefits went to white people and more and more exploitation was directed at enslaved Africans. So this was created by our legal system, it was of course enshrined in the constitution and it it really has, you know, at different times, different people coming in from Europe were. Considered not so white, um, you know, the Irish, the Italians, Jews, mm-hmm. etc. But they, had, there was a path to citizenship. There was a path to assimilation and into whiteness. And uh, during all that time, immigrants from uh, from countries that were or areas that were predominantly people of color were illegal or. Um, were part of a, a slavery system or indentured labor system, in which they could not become citizens, they could not become accepted, they were segregated from the rest of the society. So the history has been one of different four, four you know, different groups of people coming in from Europe and being assimilated as white, and people from other parts of the world. Either not being allowed to be in, coming in, or being um, coming coming in under very harsh and restricted terms that didn't include citizenship and other benefits of being white.
4: Right, right. And it's like race was constructed to just drive a wedge between everybody so that the wealthy white elite or, of course, uh, back in the earlier days, the planter class um, could maintain their control and dominance over everybody and continue to produce those profits. And we've just seen those manifestations over and over and over again.
5: I'll just add one more thing to that is that because... Uh, workers of color in particular were so exploited that it brought down the wages of white workers and also made white workers less powerful and working in gaining labor uh, you know working benefits because they couldn't unite with workers of color right. so they were both exploited and then divided from their natural allies and so this worked to the tremendous advantage of corporate leaders uh, industrialists and and others
4: one one thing that we were just thinking that uh, was, has been talked about a little bit, and it's kind of one of those big buzzwords, uh, assimilation. Can you just explain that like, real brief, what assimilation is?
5: Assimilation is the process that my foreparents went through of being basically um, invited to become white if they gave up their, all of their customs, and languages and rituals and foods and music and on and on and on. Everything that distinguished them them as their own people um, was, you know, outside of the realm of kind of whiteness. And so assimilation is people accepting that bargain um, saying, yeah, I do want a job. I do need to feed my family. I do want my kids to get education and therefore, If that's the cost, I will pay that cost, and often it was particularly for their children to Mm -hmm. be able to be accepted in this new society and to, therefore, be part of, to help perpetuate the racial divisions.
1: Yeah, and you're sort of coerced into it because, of course, everyone wants what's best for their children. You look around and you see all the extra hurdles that unassimilated groups face. And I think it's very common. It makes a lot of sense that you'd make that choice for your kids. I also think a very important takeaway for our listeners is just based on what you were just talking about, the immigration waves and the history of assimilation, it's so easy to grow up in within a racist system, especially if you are in a class that's not as exploited and just feel like oh that's sad that there's racism I guess it's just human nature that's just the way it is right Definitely. right
5: well and because it's it's being fed to us all the time it has tremendous emotional resonance and so it's we we grow up hearing this in in the media in our history books um, and in our public culture And it is very deeply rooted, which is one reason why that for those of us who are white, part of our work is to do that re-education, to let go of that socialization that we went through to learn how to be white. We were each assimilated personally as children into this system of white uh, power, white dominance, and therefore we have to let go we have to examine that understand that and let go and see
4: whose interests it really serves right
1: right right it's something that was built artificially and therefore we can break it down and dismantle it
4: yes exactly exactly it's
5: one reason why our work as parents and teachers is so important is because it's not just that we do this for ourselves but we are the ones that are either helping young people move into a multiracial society which really um, takes care of everyone or become the next generation of white people who collude with and perpetuate racism in our communities.
4: Some white people listening might feel that just by talking about race and racism, it's really divisive. And what we really need to focus on is achieving a colorblind society. And after all, that's what Martin Luther King Jr. was talking about in his I Have a Dream speech, right?
5: Well, uh, you know, I I wish that were true, (laughs) but it obviously isn't. If I close my eyes, um, the world goes on around me the same. Mike. Closing my eyes to it doesn't make it go away. Um, we have massive evidence uh, that racism is the part of the foundation of our society and is tearing our society apart and keeps us separated and unable to focus on the real challenges we face. And unless we can talk about it, unless we can break the silence in white communities and white families. Um, that the claim of colorblindness is an excuse to avoid dealing with uh, the harsh reality that we have to face if we're going to create the kind of communities that we really want to live in. Um, And I I really wrote my book, Uprooting Racism, as a guy, as a toolkit for white people. To be able to understand how racism works, to be able to to do some of that personal work, understand the history, but also to find avenues for getting involved around different issues in the community and and joining groups like Surge or um, many other different groups that are working on the issues that are so important right now. Um, so look at the book, uh, use my website. Um, There's a lot of resources on it to get involved with Surge or other local organizations in your communities, because ultimately, this is not about what we think or believe. It's about what we do, and not just about what we do, but what we do together with each other um, in building the kind of community we want to live in.
1: And, of course, as always, all the links Paul mentioned uh, at many different groups and his own website will be in the show notes. So, Make sure you find those.
4: And that is a wrap, y'all. Thank you so much, Paul, for joining us for this time together. And I'm just so thrilled to be able to bring this to the Small Beans community. And thank you for this opportunity, Mike, and the Small Beans team. And lots of love and respect for, for you, Paul.
5: Like, likewise. Thanks so much for doing this. Um, I'm pl- pleased to be able to be a part of it. Oh, okay. Awesome. Take good care, everyone. Thank great great talking yeah. with Thanks. you. All right. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>
1: And now, our report from the field by bold correspondent Karim El Zain.
2: that they have a responsibility. That their responsibility is not to call the police. Because when you call the police on black people in America, harm and death comes to us. And they are responsible. So we want to go upstairs and be downstairs to greet people and remind them about why we're here. We talked about we would do two things. One, we want to create a tight circle to force people to walk around us. Two, we want to have some engagers. Last week, Tabitha and Melina were great engagers. They engage people, we all have to be engagers, but that they engage people personally and talk with them and got them to agree not to go in. So we're going to ask you all to do that again, along with you, Michelle. And very quickly, Sheila, would you introduce yourself?
6: I'm
4: Sheila with Black Lives Matter LA, Long Beach.
2: I'm Julian with Black Lives Matter Los Angeles.
4: Audrey,
6: white people for
0: black lives. Kareem, white people for black lives. Adam, white people for black lives.
7: Andrea, white people for black lives. Talia,
0: soon to be black lives. Zach, white people for black lives. Michelle, white people for black lives. Molina, black lives matter.
6: This is Kareem el with bold conversations about race, and I'm in Los Angeles right now, so I just I wanted they they to get a sense of exactly. what this action has been like. What's how long has it been going on? Some of the basics of uh,
2: what's been going on here. Describing to people who have no idea, you know. Well, uh, on October 29, two thousand eighteen, Albert Ramon Dorsey was killed uh, by LAPD at the Twenty Four Hour Fitness Center. He was showering and getting out of the shower, uh, and the police rolled up on him, two of them, uh, and shot him. Uh, their body cams fell off, so there's no, there's no um, reporting of it. Uh, and they say that he was acting in a threatening manner. Um, he was naked. Um, so what could he have done? And many of us believe that it doesn't matter. The fact is, he was killed. And we are holding 24-hour fitness responsible for calling the police because in america if you call the police on black people we are more than likely to wind up dead or harmed Uh, and it happened a year before last, uh, or last year rather, um, in 2017, same thing, uh, some kind of incident happened. They called the police, the police show up, uh, and Dennis Todd Rogers winds up dead. So we're saying to 24 Hour Fitness, first, don't call the police on black people. Two, that they should come up with some procedures uh, and alternatives to doing that, and then... Secondly, they need to go through some sensitivity training that Black Lives Matter LA will help them, and then finally issue a statement uh, supporting the black, the value of black lives. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are our three demands of them. That's simple demands. Um, when Starbucks, two people, two black people were arrested in Starbucks, uh, they shut down for a whole day uh, and did sensitivity training. Two people have been killed uh, at 24 Hour Fitness and they haven't done anything. So we want them to do something. That's why we're calling for a boycott. I'm Adam sorry. Smith with white people for black
7: lives.
6: So what has the uh, What's the experience been like on the ground at the protest last week?
7: We didn't really know what to expect, you know. Like, we didn't know what kind of feedback we would get from people trying to go in, people coming out of the gym, what the police response would be. Um, And I think overall, we're really pleased with um, the picket in general. The first two weeks we've done it, we've successfully turned away people um, that said they're going to cancel their memberships that either didn't know... um, that Albert Ramon Dorsey was actually murdered by the police inside this gym or that just hadn't heard it really in context of other than like the police narrative that he was doing something wrong and after we were able to like have some of these conversations people really realized that you know they could probably cancel their membership and not come back so it's it's felt good to be and week to week having seemingly having an impact on what we're here to do. When I think about like what's at stake as a white person um, and engaging in this boycott, you know, I, for me, it's always been it's easy for me to like, you know, say Black Lives Matter, you know, put a bumper sticker on my car, um, but I think what's hasn't always been easy for me is to get into a place where I'm actually like using influence that I do have um, to say black lives matter and what I mean by influence is like being intentional with my dollars um, and being cognizant of the fact that this that is a real way to either that we value or devalue things Um, so I'm not a member of 24-hour fitness but I feel it's my responsibility as a white person to engage with white folks that may not see this as a Issue of like supporting this organization that obviously doesn't value black lives. You know, a lot of people are just like in taking the side, if there's a side um, of the police, of the gym that called the police and ended up getting Albert Ramon Dorsey killed. You know, saying like he shouldn't have been doing what he was doing, he should have just left, and you know, all the things that we hear from the police. Um, So there's definitely been pushback, but I think it's. Been successfully counterbalanced by the winds of seeing people turn away and and lifting up why we're here.
3: We're sorry, Mac. We're sorry, John Horton.
2: John John Horton. Kenneth Ross Jr.
0: Kenneth Ross Jr. AJ Weber. AJ Weber. Weber. Oscar Grant.
2: Oscar Grant. Zelalem Wintu. I think in a city like LA,
6: we like to say that you know that we're a multicultural city; these things aren't an issue. But this is also the city of Rodney King, so you know I think we're you know, and that was only that was in my lifetime, and I'm only 28, so uh, you know race is still you know it's not a coincidence these two men were black, and I'm from the Deep South, so. Um, it's just still a very sensitive issue for me, and I, you know, I just had no idea that you know the same shower that I could have been in was the one that someone was murdered in, and there's nothing talked about it. So, yeah, that's definitely something that's shocking to me, and I'm glad you guys brought this to my attention. So, are you considering uh, canceling your membership? Yeah, I'm gonna try to consider canceling, but the only thing is, there's a number of uh, people that I know in management that I really trust, and, and they're people of color, as just like me. Um, I think the same thing's happening to that. Uh, governor that needs to resign in uh, Virginia, Virginia, Northern. It's too easy to pile on him because obviously he needs to resign but it's too easy to pile on and without really addressing the issue at large. Um, I don't want just, to just, just say he needs to resign and then assume that when he leaves the problem leaves too. It, the problem's always going to be present. So I think we need to kind of work together in a, a more positive, cohesive manner. And I think that's that's the way forward. We live in a really divisive divisive time and, you know, okay. I love protests. I love free speech. I love this. This is wonderful. But um, but I also want to give a you know talk to them. And if they're not willing to talk then that's going to be a problem. boycott campaign?
0: Successes. So, we were able to turn away at least a dozen people. At least a dozen people committed to canceling their memberships. Um, But I think there's also a success in just being here. You know, all of us are here because we value black life. And, you know, for parents to get up with their children and be here and say, look, black life is important, right? Um, For people to say, you know, I don't need to sleep in on a Saturday morning. I'm going to be here and I'm going to uplift the value of black life that's a success. We're also making 24-hour fitness really nervous, right? They know that this is growing, that this is not, you know, when we came here the first time a couple months ago, that it's not just a one-off. We're going to be here consistently, and it's going to impact their bottom line. They called in police because they felt like it was best for their bottom line, and the murder of black people people for them it's not even um, what do they call it collateral damage it's part of their intentional drive for profit so what has been happening is kind of the downplaying of albert ramon dorsey's death but black death in general at the hands of police right when we talk about the value of black life that never goes out of style right we have to constantly fight for the value of black life i think that them saying you know albert ramon dorsey's life doesn't mean anything or it's not newsworthy that part of the problem and it also points to like kind of the corporate connection um, of mainstream media that each of these people are people and for us to deny you know their lives or um, you know really kind of treat them as if it was just some of the people walking out the most troublesome people walking out are like totally pulling lines like um, one of the guys I just talked to was like well this gym is really dirty so they have to protect the cleanliness of the gym the bathrooms right and I'm going, they murdered somebody. You know, I, one, he's not accused of being the reason for the filth, right? If it's filthy, then they need to hire more people at a livable wage to clean it, right? But two, if it was, let's say he made the bathroom dirty. Does that mean he should be murdered, right? And it's really troublesome and saddening and enraging you know this is kind of lifted up as a reason to dispose of black life as if those lives mean nothing
6: yeah yeah okay yeah thank you so much
0: all right thanks
4: What's up, y'all? This is Dahlia from White People for Black Lives again, and we're bringing you some more calls to action because, as promised, we always want to make sure that you have ways to be able to plug in to further your anti-racist action so that you can be committed to work in the long term for racial justice. So the first we have is recommended readings. And of course, we have Uprooting Racism by Paul Kivel, Stamped from the Beginning by Ibram X. Kendi, The History of White People by Neil Irvin Painter. Then we have stuff that you can watch race the power of illusion and that will be linked in the show notes and white like me a documentary and we know it's really challenging for white folks to be able to hold difficult conversations about race so we have a few resources so that you can get the skills that you need to be able to stay in conversation with your fellow white people the first is bold conversations about race And we know it's the same name as this podcast, but it is a different project and it's a project we love, a project by Color of Change. Next, we have the White Ally Toolkit by David Compt. And then if you're in Los Angeles, you can always check out a Saturday dialogue space hosted by AwareLA at awarela.org. And we always, always want you to be able to donate your money to the organizations that matter. So we have the Movement for Black Lives, the Black Network, Southeast Immigrant Rights Network, and Showing Up for Racial Justice National. And all of this information can be found at the Small Beans Patreon page in the show notes.
0: Heartbeats in these streets I feel no peace Heartbeats, heartbeats
5: me the strength to breathe to move these feet in front of me Heartbeats, heartbeats <laughs>
1: BOLD is a collaboration between Small Beans and Showing Up for Racial Justice, produced by White People for Black Lives. Our theme song, Heartbeats, was written and performed by Rachel Cantu and Melantopia.
4: What's up, Dahlia? What's up, Dahlia? <laughs> <laughs> What's up, Dahlia? What's up, Dahlia? What's up, up self? What's going on, <laughs> self? We're all Dahlia over here. <laughs>